Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast in which social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the programme. In his 2011 argument for why international relations should take the threat of zombies seriously, Dan Dresner, paraphrasing Adam Smith, wrote... If he was to lose his little finger tomorrow, he would not sleep tonight. But, provided he never saw them, he will snore with the most profound security over the ruin of hundreds of millions of Chinese zombies, and the undead existence of that immense multitude seems plainly an object less interesting to him than this paltry misfortune of his own. If his finger was bitten off by a flesh-eating ghoul, however, then all bets would be off. Today's the podcast zombie episode, and uh, we're going to be discussing... Dan Dresner's 2011 book, Theories of International Politics and Zombies, um, as well as uh, Max Brooks's 2006 oral history of the zombie war, uh, World War Z. Z. <laughs> um, it's a subject of contention. Um, I'm your host, Alex Hoseason, nibbling your brains to get at the truth. I'm Charlotte Botfield, and I've been classified F6. I'm Matthew Campbell, and my favourite food is cup of noodle brain soup. Uh, I'm Yvonne Rinkert, and I always double tap. Okay, so having, I mean, just read the books over the last over the last week or so. I, th- I think one of the confusions for me, uh, at least reading the Dresden book, which I, di- I didn't read as a student, right? I mean, this came out after when I was already in graduate school. Um, was I, I was slightly confused as to who it was for. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there, and I'm familiar with IR theory and everything else, but the actual audience seems a little bit confusing to me. I mean. Um, what do, we, what do we think about that? Well, I was this, this book was on the reading list of the university that I studied abroad at in my second year, and that was really the first time that I had ever studied theory. I'm actually a historian, really, more than a theorist. And I actually liked the book at the time. It, the whole zombie thing really uh, interested me, and it took me to reading the book, and I read the book over other books that were on the reading list, simply because it said zombie in the title. So in that way, I think the book has definitely got some pluses there because it draws students in where they might not be drawn in at other times. As now this is four years later, I have to disagree with parts of the book, but the book is clearly a book for, for new people into theory. So in some ways, it yeah, definitely works. I mean, that's you, you can defend it on that line of so you can write the best book in the world about IR theory but if it's not interesting no one's going to read it And mm-hmm. at which point it just doesn't work and so whatever other failings the book has it has to be better than those because well people read it yeah that's why I came across although I suspect Alex might disagree because uh... well I mean I listen to jazz right <laughs> <laughs> so your opinion is bunk <laughs> well yeah. well I mean I, d- I don't know like I mean, as far as teaching goes, like, I mean, what well, I mean, you, you might say, like, pedagogically, right? I mean, I, I tend to take the line that people rise to things. So I, I, I kind of take the thing of, well, don't, don't dumb it down, right? I mean, actually, no, I'm, I'm being a bit harsh on, 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 on Dresden, right? I mean, there's parts of the book where the book's consistent. It's, it's good. I mean, I, I think it's a good enough example. It, it, it's dealing with a particular way of thinking about IR theory which says there's a thing called IR theory right 
international relations theory and it's something you can study and you learn the abstractions and you learn the debates and all that kind of thing which something I'm, I don't entirely buy but is probably fairly familiar to Dresner's context right but at the same time I do take the line that give people the hard stuff and it'll take them a little bit longer but they'll come out much better for it now I mean I don't know whether that's a just the heritage of my undergrad my undergrad education where it was kind of like well let's spend five weeks teaching Thomas Hobbes and and you know which which we don't do in Aberystwyth but I mean you know I would argue that you know I would argue that that stood me in reasonably good stead even though I disagree with just about everything in Hobbes so I'm not sure I mean I I, I don't know whether this is still a thing right, on, on on courses and stuff but I mean maybe as, as a kind of pre-reading thing I would kind of be fine with it. But when it turns up on an undergraduate syllabus, it feels like teaching people to be lazy. Well, it it used to be on our postgraduate syllabus. And uh, it it was there as a a pre-reading and uh, to the core text. But I think one of its other problems, that there's a lot missing, which Yvonne had. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that the question is then also... Wind her up and watch her go. (laughs) Here she goes. (laughs) Gonna be gentle. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think there's a question as to whether you people read something not at all, or read something that we would consider basic, or whether they read something that might give them a wrong impression of some things, or you know, of particular theories in this case. And I think that was the problem that, that I had with kind of the treatment of, of mm-hmm. feminism and Marxism, because that was mentioned in the in a single footnote and coming from my perspective I think those are really quite important for the stuff that we're doing so you are that footnote pardon you are that footnote I am that footnote <laughs> just, you know, I'd like to be a bit bigger <laughs> so I think as yeah I, I don't know whether it's it's just a kind of dumbed down version of theory or, or thin version of theory, or whether that it might actually be, you know, I don't know, a, a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of some theories. This this becomes important though, because if you're doing a slimmed down introductory text, things are going to get cut, and it shouldn't surprise us that the things that get cut and the things that stay in follow patterns that we see in academia generally. So the let's be fair, fairly dismissive attitude which Dresner takes towards Marxism and feminism is an attitude we can hear verbally repeated by some people in lectures and seminars and on panels. Well, I think, I think, I mean, in some sense, that's kind of a symptom. I mean, it, it's an American book, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, as someone that has quite a strong affinity with Marxism, I'm also quite aware that it's quite a strong part of my cultural history mm. and my social history, which, it, you know, arguably in America has never really existed, right? Um, but I mean, to, to, move, to move on to the, the kind of, well, the, the zombie bit of it, um, I mean, Charlotte, I mean, you, you were saying that the, the zombies were what got you to read it, right? And, 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 you know, this comes, and I think Dresden notes, you know, you have Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and Sense and Sensibility mm-hmm. and Zombies, you know, these kind of um, half-taking the mick, but also kind of I think reasonable attempts at kind of reviving reviving old books in that sense. But I mean, in that case, it, is it all the zombies bring to this? I mean, is it just novelty? I personally didn't like the zombies in it. There's no consistency. There's, yeah, there's yeah. just no consistency. It's 
I think often he uses zombies in the same way that you would use another biological issue like SARS, when actually I think if zombies were to walk the, walk the planet, they would have quite a different reaction to them, even though biologically they may be similar. So I remember when I did read this the first time, I remember like, well, what is a zombie? And he does have a chapter defining what a zombie is. And then at other times in the book, he disregards what a zombie is or he changes what a zombie is. Um, whether a zombie can move quickly or slowly, he says, is, is not important. But I think that probably is quite important. I mean, this is a problem he's going to have in trying to write a piece of theory, is that from a health security point of view, I get to put my PhD in a podcast. <laughs> uh, from a health security point of view, zombie plagues are... Oh, they're, they're just not this thing. <laughs> right. So they're, they're, diseases are spread by breathing on people or animals, and zombie plague is neither. And so I think you could arguably defend the inconsistent zombies and that if he tried to come up with a consistent scientific idea of what a zombie was, the entire book wouldn't work. Because, well, the realist solution to a zombie plague would be, it's not a problem. And the liberalist solution to a zombie plague would be, it's not a problem. Because a realistic zombie plague would burn itself out. Because, you know, slow-moving humans that have to bite you to infect you are a terrible way to spread a disease. Whereas, you know... Humans that sneeze on each other and can infect geese, that's a great way to spread the disease. But doesn't, isn't the World War Z, don't they move slowly and spread the disease? They do, it's kind of weird. In the film they move quickly, which, oh, is, is, which is really mm. weird. It's, it's a bit confusing when, you know, it's one yeah. of the major separations. But then maybe one way of getting out of this kind of problem would be to just, rather than, you know, have two different options, or, well, there's a fast moving and then there's a slow moving, if you play through that differently, you could just say that they evolve or something, like illnesses evolve, yeah. right? Well, so, I mean, I'm yeah. not so sure. I, th- I, th- I think what he's doing in the book, I mean, you can tell with the cover, you know, you've got the hand zombies bit kind of tacked on at the end, as is kind of customary in these kind of books. Um, but I think in some ways, I mean, and this is a limited defense of Dresden, but it is a defense, I think. Um, having been skeptical earlier, but I'm, I'm <laughs> flip-flop. Um, I think he makes the point that people expect to make or people are expected to make about the theories that he's talking about, right? So it comes to realism, oh, anarchy, um, security dilemma, so and so on. It comes to liberalism, well, you've got institution building, corporate, you know. Um, zombies are what people make of it for constructivism, right? He's already got the things he wants to say about the theories, right? Now, I mean, the fact that he's talking about theory in that way might be something that we don't particularly like, but he's got those things in, in a kind of undergraduate textbook kind of way, Right, and then finds a way for zombies to fit them. I mean, that's why he's got this catalogue of zombies from 28 Days Later to World War Z to... He even uses the word deadhead in the beginning. And if I remember rightly, that's... It's Army of Darkness, isn't it? I think it's Army of Darkness, but it's also the name of the fans of the Grateful Dead, yeah. the band. So it, it, it's all a bit strange. So he just kind of fills these things in when it's kind of a convenient reference for him. right? Because, I mean, no book that was consistent about zombies... I mean, as soon as you're talking about zombies that have the ability to kind of form societies and all that kind of thing, you're no longer really talking about zombies, zombies right? Yeah. Mm, you're talking about teenagers, maybe, but, <laughs> you know, I mean... I think that, that that was the problem I had. Zombies are suddenly able to make societies. The whole point, the one with the feminism bit that he did put in was that, you know, that feminists would like zombies because they went against social norms and stuff, and like, that's not a zombie. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah, I agree. Well, I think interestingly, I mean, when we had the interview with Patrick Jackson um, a couple of months ago, you know, his argument about what we can get out of these things, 
isn't the kind of Game of Thrones thing of like, oh, look, there's this cultural thing where, you know, what we think about the world kind of looks like what it looks like in this cultural artifact. You know, oh, isn't that amazing? I mean, what he's saying is actually through things like consistency, world building and setting and themes and all of that kind of stuff, you can get more out of it, right? Which is arguably what Brooks does, but we'll get to that. But by making it schizophrenic in that sense, I mean, he makes quite a lot of reasonable kind of cultural jokes and stuff. You know, he talks about the EU setting out the mother of all directives and how to deal with the zombie plague, which, you know, is, is... true and you know it gets a titter but I mean it's not interesting science fiction no um, the, I mean, the other thing I mean, yeah, the zombies are just a bit abstract right they're, yeah mm-hmm. they're not a present force and the transition between I'm talking about the basics of IR and citing vaults and then I'm talking about zombies. The transition occurs with an almost audible clunk. There's a, it's very clearly, I've done the one thing and now I have to do the other. Whereas Brooks, to bring him in, there's a phrase in storytelling, you show, don't tell. And Brooks utterly succeeds at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are characters who, because they're politicians or war veterans, will discuss particular problems they encounter. But in general, it's a show, don't tell structure. Um, I mean... As, as, as someone that's theoretically oriented, as, <laughs> as, 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 as the case may be, uh, at, least, at, least, at least until I finish this project, there, there was kind of some stuff I got out of it, right? I mean, w- one of the ways you break theories, right, when, you, when you're doing theoretical work, is you bring in things like deus ex machina, right? You bring in things from outside, whether that's UFOs or whatever else. You know, this is the end of Watchmen and... Uh, dead Triffids or you know you know whatever else you, you bring in things from outside and that kind of breaks things and that's how when you're running through things in your head and all of that kind of thing you, you bring in these kind of outside things all the time so I mean there's part of that which appealed to me but I, I, I don't know I mean he just kind of stopped short of what I want it to be right I mean I, I think he's using these cultural references to reinforce theoretical approaches whereas I'm maybe more interested in how they stretch and break them. Yeah. But I, I think I'm coming from this from a slightly different perspective that all, all the people that came up with this theory has had a problem in the real world that they were talking about in the first place. And yeah, we might have forgotten about this, this problem or can build on it since. But, you know, they started in the real world. I'm not sure what it says about theory when you have to make up a fictional scenario to you know, ex- explain them to other people or to communicate them? I'm, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable. Well, no, that... Yeah, so Hobbes, is, Hobbes isn't writing about political theory, he's writing about the English Civil War. And E.H. Carr isn't writing about realism, he's writing about Nazism. So, so is Hobbes. Yeah. And potentially you need to, because uh, one objection I've always had with a lot of IR theory is that, well, your examples are very specific to that thing you're talking about and I don't necessarily think they can be extrapolated and it potentially puts IR writers in a double bind to demand that their examples are both real and generalizable. yeah I, I think I'd agree I mean I, I, th- I think that and I've argued at length <laughs> that theories have a specific problem field what I call a problem field um, in terms of to, to the point where what we talk about is 
highly conditioned, even 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 by the fact that we're brought up, right? I mean, and 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 the fact that all of us were brought up after the end of the Cold War makes a huge difference to the way in which we're able to see these things, right? One of the reasons we spend so much time arguing that realism is irrelevant and everything else is because the Cold War and doesn't exist anymore. So, well, I mean, man, the stars seems to re-exist at the moment, but you know, and 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 I don't know what it feels like to be under threat of nuclear attack. Yeah. Right? And I think that makes a huge difference the way we think. I mean, I, I, I think it's perhaps a credit to Dresden. I mean, he does acknowledge the fact, I think, early on, that the way we think about these things is, is well, I, I'm not sure he says it's a Cold War artifact, but he does say that there's threats that we're not sure whether it would still be international relations anymore in some sense, right? And, I, you know, I, I think he's right in that regard to put the zombie apocalypse if if you want to call it that in the same problem field as things like global health non-traditional security um terrorism and all of those things i mean because he's right in identifying the fact that it has to alter the way we think about things he doesn't then follow through on that but he does acknowledge that you know we're looking at something which maybe isn't what it was and I, I think if anything I mean if you were to consider the whole book a kind of extended joke yeah, then he's poking fun at IR itself mm-hmm. which I think is probably what he's doing mm-hmm. you know, um, to some degree and, 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 and therefore is opening it up a little bit more through a kind of limited form of satire well this led to a problem in that early on we couldn't tell whether there's graphs in the early, early in the book, and we couldn't tell whether they're meant to be serious or whether they're meant to be jokes. Yeah, and that was a bit of a problem. Um, yeah, and I think it also it opens up questions again how how you use this as a teaching tool, right? Yeah. Because yeah, in in terms of should a joke be a teaching tool, and are people going to pick up on it being a joke? And do you say that it is a joke or is it not a joke? And, and and all these you things. can do this in a seminar. Think, think about this. Yeah, yeah in, in a book, you put it out there in the wild. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's tied to, uh, everyone's everyone's sense of humour is very different. And in a seminar, it will work okay. But in a book, in a book that's published all around the world, is that going to work quite the same? Yeah, I, I think. I mean, anyone that's tried to teach using Doctor Strange Love, right, has had. Which two people in the room have. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I have a bit as well. But, but three. I mean... <laughs> Might leave one out. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, students laugh at the Nazi jokes, right? Yes. Yeah. They don't laugh at what's actually, yeah. you know, the bit that was funny when it was written, um, which which leads to some some problems. Well, this was Kubrick's problem, right? I mean, the original film ended with the food fight. He took it out because... Oh, did it? Yeah. The, the, the reason there's this huge buffet of food was um, there's meant to be this huge food fight while the nukes are going off. And Kubrick took it out because he thought, well, actually, no, this just sends it into slapstick comedy in a film that's meant to be about something much more serious. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I would actually argue that theory does the same thing <laughs> um, in some regards. I mean, it takes away the... It abstracts uh, to the point sometimes where we don't realise how serious it is and when we're receiving those things when we talk about Cold War theories now we receive them as theories you know if you think about when Waltz was writing you can't blame him for writing what he was writing mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but then do you want to add to this by taking this theory, which already seems abstract, and then add this obviously abstract scenario to it? Right, but I mean the question is, is he doing it to take the mic, to break things a little bit, yeah. or just to pass it on in a kind of slightly more accessible form? And I'm not sure which way he's going with it, which, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're still not sure, you know, who it's for or what it's for. Yeah. Um, um, but if you're reading it for the first time, then yeah. thumbs up. Yeah. Thumbs mostly up. Thumbs mostly up. Yeah. Yeah. Just dead zombie hand race. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, so, I mean, to move on to Brooks, to be honest, I mean, I, I kind of just wanted to discuss Brooks. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, one day we will stick to our, our recording schedule, ladies and gents, but today is not that day. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he does the opposite, right? Yeah. I mean, he, I, I think for all the criticisms of, of Dresner being abstract, I mean, he's dealing in... He's got to write an IR textbook, is the thing. So we, we, we can praise Brooks quite rightly because he covers all this really interesting stuff. But he doesn't have to, you know, he's not given a remit of you've got a couple of realism, you've got a couple of liberalism, you've got to do a bit on game theory at the end. He doesn't have to do that. And the freedom actually ends up serving him a lot better. Well, that raises an interesting question then. Right? I mean, if you can teach IR using the theories of international politics and zombies, can you teach oral history using World War Z? Z, Z, Z. <laughs> <laughs> We have a historian in the room for yeah. <laughs> As a way of teaching oral history and the usefulness of oral history, I have definitely all the way thumbs up this time. <laughs> um, yeah, really good. It, particularly useful because it, it shows history from many different perspectives, many different times across the war. Um, oral history is, like many other types of history actually, is, is, is often neglected against the written word I and mean, there's obvious reasons for this when you're studying history um, but if I was to teach a class on oral history I would get my students to read this absolutely I mean that, that's, that's the opening conceit of the book that the interviews in World War Z are material that a journalist collected which has been rejected from the full UN report mm-hmm. and yeah. that, that page as a defence of so um, I'm sure the historian in the room can correct me if I'm slightly wrong <laughs> I read a historiographical work which argued that the way we talk about military and political history changed radically after the Vietnam War, in that it was suddenly considered important to look at the histories of normal people. Mm-hmm. And as a single-page explanation, Brooks's argument where he goes, look, the, the stories, the people I met, are a vital part of the history of the zombie war, as much as the number of bullets and the number of people. Mm-hmm. You can't delete these people from history. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I would have to slightly say whether it was actually the Vietnam War or not. Um, it's, it's been a change over the last 70, 80 years. Is the, the average person on the street can now write and read and, and can talk to people who would be writing history in the first place, which has not been the case for, for hundreds of years. Um, but it, it puts the person back in history rather than it being... The, the king, it puts the, the normal person on the street yeah. is their history. And that's vital to the story, right? So a zombie war is not interesting if it's not a story of human survival. Mm-hmm. It, it needs to be immediate and personal. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because, I mean, ostensibly you could put forward the book in the in the universe, right? In in universe, and it's so consistent. <laughs> um, you could put forward the book as actually quite a political thing. I mean, yeah. you know, in the sense that he's saying, well, you know, there's only so much that survives this war, right? Mm-hmm. And there's going to be an official history constructed. Yeah. And 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 this is similar to um, a friend of ours, Marcus Gorenson, who writes about veterans of the. Um, Soviet-Afghan war in Tajikistan, right? And, and you know, it, it runs, maybe not counter, and of course there's all qualifications over reliability and authenticity and all of those kind of debates that I'm sure are more than well-worn in, in historiography yes. circles. But it's a, it's a kind of vital act of interjecting in the debate to make sure that the official history isn't the only one. Yeah. He gets to cheat, though, of course, because in a... In a wider sense, because history is collective, you can have the book on the technical military history and then the book on the personal history. But because World War Z is the only book of the zombie war, because the others don't exist, he's a, he has to and is able to construct a version where the interviews give us all the key information we need. So one of the key events of the war is the Battle of Gandhi Park. It doesn't appear anywhere in the book. It's stitched together, this apparently vital event, from sentences said by other characters. Now, in the event of real oral history, you're not going to get that. The key event is not necessarily going to be neatly laid out by all your interviewees. And so its quality is slightly achieved. It would be interesting... Sorry, Alan. No, I was just going to say that I think it, it, it kind of takes us into account because she's saying at the end of the introduction that, oh, maybe there will be a, a, a better collection at a later point in time. So it's kind of... He's taking into account within the confines of the book, not not outside of it. I think that that this is this is just one moment, and it might evolve. I'm making way for a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's after Z? Yeah. <laughs> this also raises questions of how. So, Doctor Vaughan, who's at the department, once made a joke that historians aren't interested in anything that's younger than twenty years old because it's not history yet. And this raises yeah, a question. Yeah. And it's it's definitely relevant to our generation of historians because we have both the World War One generation is now gone. And also we have a new generation of veterans, and the question is, how long do you wait mm-hmm. before writing history? That's one of the big things about history. If you write it, if I was to write a history of the Iraq War, I have personal feelings on this. If I was to write about the Battle of Waterloo, I don't have personal feelings about the mm-hmm. Battle of Waterloo. And there's, there is a, a, an argument in history, is when does history become modern-day issues or can't they be both well I mean I, th- I think part of that is this kind of slight fallacy of impartiality right yeah. I mean the further you know supposedly the further you look back I mean you look at people like Alexandros who studies ancient Greece mm-hmm. you know you, while well, you can be detached and frankly we all want Sparta to win or we all want you know <laughs> yeah. we've, we've got our ideas of Athenian but democracy can, can you imagine anyone trying to write a novel World War Z the detached, objective, impersonal version. Yeah. <laughs> it would be terrible. Yeah. Well, no, but that's what the introduction is saying. There yeah. is this version, right? So this is consciously not that. Yeah. But then the other thing, what is interesting about this is that, um, uh, that there's actually surprisingly little information we get about the author of this book. So whereas all the other people that we hear speaking in this book have this kind of little introductory paragraph yeah. in the beginning, the, the only person that doesn't have that is the author. Well, one of the things I love is that the author of the book is the author of the book. In the audiobook version, Max Brooks hmm. plays 
himself the narrator. <laughs> oh, really? And so he reads all the little introductions and all the little things that the journalist supposedly wrote. Yeah, and I think some secondary literature was um, interesting in that they didn't quite know how to refer to, to yeah. this person. So mm-hmm. sometimes they were using Max Brooks, Max Brooks's name, and then they were referring to the narrator or to the journalist and something. So one of the things we mentioned before we hit the mic is that this book's fundamentally about survivors. And in one sense, that is the primo levi sense of what is a survivor, um, which we can return to later. But also that what keeps this book from being fundamentally a book of horror is that because these are all people telling a journalist about the war after the war, we know everyone we encounter survives. Although in one case, um, spoilers, there's a character who goes insane and no longer realises that they are who they are. Um, And you can wonder if that person died in that respect. But in that sense, it's, it's very much immediate. It's happening in past tense. Mm, and that's interesting in, in terms of the film that was made based on the book then because the film happens in a different temporality it's not about remembering something but it, it's happening at this particular point and also there's a question of perspective in that in the book the, it's first person perspective it's, it's people telling their oral histories whereas in, in the film it's third person because of kind of camera angles and these kind of things yeah I mean certain testimonies where I mean, and I guess this is the advantage, but also the ethical problem of oral history, right? Is you're forcing people to relive mm-hmm. aspects of their life which they'd really rather not. And at yeah. least four people who are interviewed as characters are mentally traumatized. The guy in the monastery, the Air Force pilot, the girl from the church, and the guy in the asylum. Yeah, not only are they reliving it, they're having to relive it in front of someone they don't know. Yeah. Which is also discussed in the book in parts, uh, in a section that's about the boat where people uh, kind of collect information and mm-hmm. broadcast it. And, and there it is said that the people that are called information receivers, I think, m- all committed suicide at the end. So there's. Mm-hmm. This is the problem with oral history in, in general, is that. And history at all, to be fair, is that for you to be able to make history, you usually have to have outlived the events which you are describing. This is perhaps a little bit less common in the modern time when we have uh, video recorders and the like where you can put it up on YouTube or somebody else can put you, your stuff up on YouTube. But to be able to give an oral history after the event, that means you must have lived through the event. And as you were saying, Yvonne, um, there is that one bit about the boat where the information receivers in the spoiler alert again they are getting in uh, people who are, are calling up desperately asking for help and the information receivers are having to ignore them and just broadcast um, useful information to, to the survival of humans this is the only time when we actually get um, testimony or testimony from people who did not survive the war and I think it's it's interesting simply from a historian's point of view that Brooks deliberately does not ask to hear any of these um, trans- read me the transcript or hear any of, of, the, of the sounds given that if this was th- doing a project like this wouldn't get past our university ethics committee, not right? does that make <laughs> as a character the author, the narrator, does that make him an immoral character? Well, I think it causes some really interesting issues. I'd just like to point out, I mean, one of the interesting, as well as the information receivers, one of the inverted commas downsides of the advanced weapon systems that are used early in the novel, is it Land Warrior? Yeah. Or mm. Future Soldier? Land or Warrior. Land Warrior. 
Um, I thought that was the British name for that's what it's called. Uh, that's what Tom um, calls it. Is that they have too much information? Yeah. Right. So when they're open to the communications, they can hear the guy a mile down the road yeah. dying. Whereas when, at least in military terms, when they cut all that information off, they can just sit there and shoot. Yeah. Right. You know, it kind of allows them to perform their function. I mean, there's a huge amount of people in the in the novel that that commit suicide, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, or well, not in the novel that commit suicide. Yeah. Or the, this is. Sorry, you have. No, I mean, I, just on the um, composition side of things, I mean, in terms of what the survivors represent, it's interesting. I mean, I presume there's a debate in oral history over curation, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. So, how much, you know, how you put these narratives together. Now, I mean, World War Z doesn't have a plot, but it has an arc, right? There's certain sections, you know, the, the fight back happens after the invasion, and there's a period of total. Total War and a bit of commas and everything else. Um, now, I mean, it would be interesting, given a, I mean, in, in a kind of slightly more radical sense, if you like, give a suitably fleshed out setting, whether he would be able to get people to write fictional oral testimonies of their own and then for him to curate them in the process of putting together World War Z, right? Now, I mean, then you would end up with a slightly more, in bit of commas, genuine idea of what that curatorial exercise involved whereas you don't know what order he's written these in while he's writing the novel yeah. but mm -hmm. you know I mean he's he's obviously got them all in his head yeah this the the book doesn't have a, a plot arc in the sense that's a protagonist we follow but it definitely has a narrative mm -hmm. and for a disparate set of interviews they actually link together in an incredibly important way in on the same boat, the problem I've found was that he, we don't get told why he chose these people. Why are these people in the book? And they fit very well together, which is the point of the book, and it works well, but is this really the case in history all the time? Is it you were saying earlier about the battle, and we don't really, one of the battles, I can't remember the name, we only hear about it through snippets from people all over the world. Oh, the Gandhi Park. Yeah. yeah. In, in oral history, you're much more likely, I suppose, to focus on your own issues at the moment. So, I mean, is it kind of not working? Do you see what I'm getting at? I think it works, but I think we should be aware that... Because the first time I read it, because I reread it for this, I only became aware on the second reading how deliberately and carefully the story is stitched together. Because mm -hmm. the first time it read like this brilliant piece of oral history that, oh, it's just this disparate set of ideas and collections that work really well together but no all the key pieces of information you need to know to get the story out there are in there yeah. I think it works very well it's a conceit but it's one that's necessary and successful I mean a lot of oral history is, is based on is that you can get today that is written down is, is stuff like uh, the First World War and the Second World War the veterans where the, or the, the reader already knows is expected to already know the basic outline of what happened and here's the difference to World War Z which is clearly fake this is also one of the problems I mean the last Tommy used to say this, that he told the story of the war so many times that what he was telling was no longer the story of the war. It was his version of it that he had perfected over time and that he had some issues as to you know how useful he was as a source at this point. I keep thinking about um, one of the uh, kind of sections. I don't remember her name. It's the woman who... I think is kind of stuck at the level of a four-year-old girl. The the feral yeah. child, yeah. Because she was 
traumatized, right? Yeah. And that that is really interesting because that is like a life testimony because she's yes. reliving it as she's yes. living it. And that does that kind of does an interesting thing to temporality because Sharon. Yeah, because it's because she doesn't have the ability to detach yeah. her own yeah, narrative from what she's feeling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and th- this raises the ethical questions of the two doctor characters who are in the testimony as to whether what they're doing is ethically acceptable. Mm-hmm. And of course it's mentioned that the uh, the Rothman Rehabilitation Home for Feral Children may lose its funding. And so are they giving this interview for the right reasons? Mm. And it's, it's also implied that this patient is traumatising to the other patients. Yeah, they have to keep doctors. her in a soundproof room. Yeah. Even it's just mentioned when she pretends to be a zombie at one point, and the doctors who are with her become traumatized yes. from hearing that sound. So the sound is now traumatizing. Yeah, I mean it's interesting to see what the survivors represent. I, I think, so there's the. I think it works better in some ways than we give it credit for because the, the audience is us, right? So I mean, just as we were saying earlier, where IR theories are kind of a, a, a testimony of another time. Mm. Right, this book is right. So, I mean, if, if if Brooks is you know in character and we're thirty years later, then perhaps he is writing, thinking, well, people need to know what certain things are. I mean, presumably, in that universe, twenty years later, people know what the Battle of Gandhi Park was. Yeah. Right, and so just as the last Tommy is referring to the Battle of the Somme, and we all have some abstract notion of what that was. Right, and and there's interesting things where the bits where the um, more personal testimonies tail off like on specific details so he'll remember the story of Raj Singh being punched in the face because he wouldn't leave right are precisely the bits where the oral testimony would break down right I mean interestingly there's a couple of points where so he asks Todd Wayno the US Army veteran about the people who were put on trial for quote questionable survival methods and Todd goes, no, I don't want to talk about that. Which is interesting, because that's the author's decision to introduce something which he's then not going to put in the novel. Mm-hmm. And that makes it feel very real, but it also talks about humans in a very important way, right? So if you were to do something like this, you're not going to get humans to talk about everything because there's certain things they're just not going to want to touch on. Yeah, and I, I think that Dresdner is... Uh... Sorry, Brooks is, is is more consistent than Dresdner in that regard, yeah. right? I mean, he confronts it with the full horror of what it represents. You know, in, in, including the extremities of things like the Redica plan, yeah. where, you know, it's, it's, it's just a kind of adaptation of the South, South African plan concerning a black uprising, you know, all of those things. And, and at least there's some really interesting places. I mean, there's some characters which are quite obviously... And even the narrator thinks are pretty much plain evil, right? Like yeah. the guy that made profit off of the fake uh, vaccine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in other cases, I mean, there's hints at cannibalism. Yeah. Yes, there is. Um, Survivor's guilt very heavy in a lot of places. Yeah. Exploitative practices over smuggling people over borders um, and, and, and all of that kind of thing, right? I mean, I, I, I think that... It's interesting that the human trafficker is portrayed more sympathetically than Brex got, right? So the human trafficker is this um, Kyrgyzstani slash Tibetan guy who people are in a terrible panic, their lives are falling apart, their relatives are reanimated as zombies, 
and he knowing it's not going to help smuggles them out of the country and makes some money off it what how this money is going to help in this post-apocalyptic world is unknown and Brett Scott does the same thing except he does this with a vaccine that doesn't work and it's interesting that the people smuggler chapter is significantly more sympathetic possibly because of economic inequality so the people smuggler makes his profit off economic inequality because he's trying to help the poor get to a better life that doesn't exist whereas Breck Scott is using the fear of the rich fear that the rich have of the poor to make himself richer yeah I mean it's interesting because there's a consistency of vocation in both of those things right Scott's still doing the same thing that he was doing presumably as a marketing executive you know maybe he or well I don't know if marketing executive is the right word but you know maybe he's made money off other vaccines before big pharmaceutical companies you know all of that kind of conspiracy stuff um whereas the person who's smuggling i mean they're they're also doing that right i mean they're continuing doing what they were before yeah just in different circumstances he he makes the comment that his job had actually changed very little he was just moving more humans than before so one of the recurring themes in the book is an idea of military culture and strategic culture and how, in, how unprepared many of the world's militaries were to fight this war because the cliche, which is pretty much true, is that you always have the army you need to fight the previous war. But Yvonne, you had an interesting point about the very idea that it's a war. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it starts really with the very first paragraph that there's a number of ways this is being referred to. It's called the crisis, the dark years, the walking plague, and then you have World War Z and Z War One or Z. Um, and but this is interesting because I'm not sure if it's a war in the first place, because there's no opposite army, right? There's there's no enemy. I get that there's a problem, but that could easily be configured in a different way. So this is similar to what you what uh, you Charlotte said <laughs> about um, the the in the context of Dresner's book, in that there it is an analogy between the zombies and kind of various illnesses and and all these things so so what we, I mean you, you you could argue that there's no so what makes the zombie war horrifying is that we're having to gun down humans that can't stop and this the the the, the supreme allied commander europe has he he literally compares it directly to total war is that this is an army it doesn't need logistics it never tires it will never run away and we can make the argument about well it's no it's not an army because it's not an organized military unit and no it's not a war because it's not being fought between two militaries but when you're talking about, okay, it's a biomedical disaster, well, yes, but it's a biomedical disaster which requires people in line with guns to stand there shooting what used to be a human. So there's a very real extent to which what vocabulary should we use? And does it matter that we've misapplied the term? I think it becomes a war. I mean, I, I don't... The, the, I mean, the definition that you know you might want to offer you know, operates with a certain level of kind of analytical distance, right? You know, you've got these formal principles, you know, uh, risk of defeat, you know, and, and, and vulnerability and all that kind of thing. Um, two armed parties, you know, whatnot. But I, I, I think that breaks down because it's it's not a war at the beginning. It's a, it's, it's a biological disaster or biomedical disaster or whatever you want to call it. But it's made into a war. I, I, I think that with regards to the actual response, even if it's just from one side, right, mm. then, you know, it discusses in great depth the war economy, what's needed, strategy, intelligence, and all of that kind oh, of shit, stuff. Sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, maybe, maybe it isn't, you know, it starts off as a, a biological disaster and everything else, but in terms of what it becomes, in terms of the response and everything else, because it, it's impossible to get testimonies from the zombies and so and so on, right? I mean, you know, they might consider it a war. You know, they, they're going all out to eat human flesh or whatever. So, but I, I think it becomes a war, at least on the, on the, on the side of what we hear. Um, and I, I think there's a lot in there which suggests that the mode of organization that we're talking about here, at least on the human bit and therefore the bit we can yeah. understand, is, is a war. And culturally, right, which I think is also important, you know, with the propaganda films and everything else, it, it's a war. The, the, there's also the, the, the actual character relevance in the this, like many sci-fi, is making a point about our real world. And so, no, the US Army isn't fighting a war. But the things he's comparing it to, the real-world events, are wars. So when he talks about a US military completely unprepared with the wrong weapons and the wrong strategy, or a US military which whose enthusiasm was utterly depleted by fighting what they term brush fire wars, but clearly, you know, implies therefore a guerrilla war in a hot place. The, the, these, are, these have real-world reference, and those are wars. So it's probably appropriate to make the comparison from a science fiction point of view. Well, yeah, and I, I think the definition kind of has to run ad hoc, right? So, I mean, in games like This War of Mine, where you, you, you play a civilian in, in what is heavily implied to be Sarajevo, is it a war? Well, it doesn't really matter, because if you go out, you're going to die. Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, maybe there's certain forms of behaviour which we would draw parallels to the way people would act during wartime or, or something similar. But, I mean... I'm, I'm a bit of a nominalist about these things, you know. It, it, it doesn't really matter. The threat is is real. How, how, how do you think that reflects in terms of um, the way people respond in emergency situations? Because I mean, one of the things that Dresner points out is one of the themes of, of zombie works the world over. You know, whether that's one of the many of the dead films, or whether that's recent things like Daisy is that people become either less than they are or more than they are when confronted with that kind of problem yeah I mean the the, the vice president the wacko makes that point that great times make great men well no they also break them and he sees a lot of evil in that time but there's also a while that's true of a lot of zombie fiction, I think World War Z succeeds because it captures one of the fundamental aspects of human survival, which is you just try and keep your head down and survive. I mean, a lot of the people we hear interviews from, they're not trying to do something deeply noble or do something which makes them, you know, massively successful in this apocalyptic world. They're trying to get enough food to eat that day and then sleep somewhere safe and then repeat the next day. Mm-hmm. And I find that a fundamentally more realistic view of humanity than we'd all be terrible biker gangs or we'd all club together and found a utopia. Yeah. I, I think the Jessica Hendricks, I tried, to live in a, I tried to live in a Canadian cold wasteland and just survive, is, that is humanity. Yeah, and I think what plays into this as well is that the social system is completely turned upside down and then things that you know, we valued before are no longer valued. I think someone mentions at, towards the end of the book that... They're kind of trying to establish faith in the dollar again, but people are so used to kind of exchanging objects mm-hmm. that that doesn't work any 
doesn't really work anymore and they kind of have to fix that and the social system and and all these things have kind of turned upside down and it's interesting what's happening once they've kind of fallen away mm. it's interesting sorry about that is um as we're discussing the chapter on russia and they say that religion has become an anomaly during 20th century russia then it becomes quite important during the war and then in the very last bit on the conclusion where we meet um the russian woman again she says something about how religion that this 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 priest is not important anymore he's been sent off to siberia so yeah it's it's interesting one thing that never seems to get quite upturned is the idea of the state right well, i would argue actually there's quite a lot of things that don't get upturned when you know i mean throughout the book you know it, it, it demonstrates that there's i mean it, it, it runs counter to that kind of survivalist myth that you know everything disappears and all you have to account for is yourself Right. I mean, the state, the church, the UN, all of these things. I mean, I think in some ways it's quite an optimistic book as, as, as far as that goes. Well, perhaps it's because the zombies don't take over quite as much as we think they've taken over. It's just the perceptions of the characters. Well, of course, that's true. Well, they also don't destroy in a very real sense, right? So they don't deliberately knock over oil wells no. and so there's an extent to it the, the, the idea that you could retreat the entire America West across the Rockies and then reoccupy it well if you look at the cities of Europe that went through total wars that doesn't happen in a human on human conflict things get destroyed whereas World War Z is perhaps legitimately optimistic in that sense of well you could you know repopulate New York quite happily very quickly because well the zombies aren't going to blow things up with artillery yeah, at least there's some really interesting. I mean, one of the things I was reminded of in the in the section on money was German reunification, right, and the massive disparity exchange rate wise between um, between the mark and I don't know what the Eastern European currency was called the well the Eastern European <laughs> German German mark or, or or whatever it was called. You know, people can people remember things and they hold them in their minds. So when they're re-expanding, as it were. Um, they have some idea, as flawed as it may be, of what it's supposed to look like. Um, and it's only a brief chapter, which I think is, is a kind of tip of the hat to Mad Max and all of that kind of thing, where he talks about recolonizing, and all of a sudden, well, there's people there that have defended themselves for mm-hmm. however long a war's gone on for, Still is it 10 years or something? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and how do you deal with that? You know, I think, I think he says, you know, we give them the option yeah. to. But that, that has a legitimate point to make in the... So the US government pulls back and, and literally abandons these people yeah. and makes no attempt to... Because if you take the Hobbesian idea that the purpose of the state is to protect its citizens, and the quotas of these people were abandoned. And so, well, you could make a very real argument, both legally, morally, and I don't know, social construct-wise, that, well, those places are no longer America and that you, as a government, no longer have any claim to them because any anything which you, with which you might measure your sovereignty, you chose to remove. And indeed, one of the places they list as one they had to retake by force is the Black Hills, which, if you know American history, is a... It's been a site of many ugly problems between Native Americans and predominantly oh, really? white U.S. government. And I suspect that's Brooks's hat tip to, well, if you were a Native American community who had survived the zombie war... Well, you'd be quite legitimate in saying, no, you don't get to do this again. 
this was our land and you took it and then you left mm -hmm. and it's our land again and now you're claiming it was always yours that's preposterous yeah i was thinking about this that it's it almost feels like a kind of reenactment of frontier thinking right that oh, well now we finally got over this frontier thing and now we have to do it again Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he carries that across to several things, right? I mean, he, he talks about Russia expanding into uh, Belarus, Belarus, is it? And, and and says, you know, the Ukraine might be next. Yeah. And even, I mean, historically, even in the bit on Wales, right, he's talking about the castles and everything else. Now, when he's talking about the castles, he's talking about the March of Lord castles, which are the Norman castles, yeah. um, which then serve to shelter some people but he, he he talks about communities reclaiming in some ways their own history which is so the chapter on castles says that these exist because of the history of institutional anarchy and in many times that's true but they also exist because of history of military occupation and so there's almost a false history in the chapter on castles there yeah 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 because he draws that between the UK and the North US, America. right? Where and then he has to come up with all the examples of actually the fortresses all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I was really impressed by that. But you know, he mentions Conway and Harlech and yeah. all those castles yeah. I went to as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, of course, castles date from the era of physical human defence. Well, the thing you were defending against was a bunch of humans on foot, possibly yeah. on horseback. This is just a question, which I, I was probably not useful. But what happened to Mexico? It was renamed. I'm not sure if, if more happened to it. So there's a lot of renaming goes on. and It's implied with that one that they've gone for a sort of more pre-Columbus identity. So there's, there's, it's mentioned in the Castles chapter that yeah. um, those Mexicans fought off all those zombies on the steps of that bloody Great Pyramid. Mm -hmm. And then Todd Wayno, the veteran, remarks that it's been renamed. And so you can imagine in... I don't, I don't know if the word indigeneity is appropriate here. But if you think about the way that the Black Hills are mentioned and then Mexico's renamed, there's, there's multiple lines drawing through of a return to an idea of who we are centrally rather than globally, mm -hmm. and certainly a rejection of colonial names. That's, I mean, that's quite interesting, particularly given the manner in which um, the threat is global, right? So ostensibly you know you, you you have a couple of different narratives in in ir about this right i mean either at some point the threats get so great we end up with a world state right and 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 there's a sense in world war z that actually our institutions fail but then they come back stronger in that kind of form but then uh in a kind of corresponding sense with that there's also a, a return to a kind of more uh to use a hackney term, kind of grassroots identity, um, where it's what you make and what you do um, in, in a very particular sense that defines your identity as opposed to what an institution would call you. Yes. I quite like the bit on Huber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huber becomes quite powerful. It's super powerful. And then it <laughs> sets up camps for the Americans, doesn't it? And then, yeah, it's quite interesting. I thought that would be it. There's this kind of interesting thing that it does where it kind of reverses particular structures. Like, mm -hmm. I, I kept thinking about this in the context of kind of what, what's happening in the Mediterranean with boats, right? Because there's a very similar thing happening um, 
in the book, but it's working the other way yes. around. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they have the interesting early on certain Western countries refer to the disease as African rabies. African rabies. Yes. That's a, that's a very exactly. cleverly named yes. thing because it's full of, it's racially loaded in so yeah. many ways. Because rabies is a disease that animals get, and Britain has fought for so many years to keep rabies out. Mm. And African, yeah. Yeah, but yeah the, the, the reversal of various um, advantages and disadvantages is actually mentioned in that, at the, San, is it the Santiago conference they call it? I think so. Yes, it is. Um, so. And one of the people mentions that, no, it's the, Sarat- it's the Saratoga conference. Okay. And the guy who's talking about this is from Santiago, he's Chilean. And he talks about how some people at the UN were like, well, hang on, this overturns the world order. We don't have to listen to the American president anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a suggestion somewhere that this might actually be a more just world order than they arrived in. Well, if, if from a Marxist perspective, it's certainly less globally capitalistic, right? Definitely. I mean, and, and, and there's a lot in there with people identifying more with their work um, and, and all of that kind of thing. I mean... It's actually portrayed more explicitly in the film the attack of the kind of yeah. rich celebrities on the on the poor when they end up shooting at the poor rather than the zombies. Um, but I think that whether that's whether that's a structural thing, I'm I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, it, it it seems to me to be you know there's a fair argument to say that well there's a w- way in which this can turn to a kind of pre-totalized America, right? So you know local living you know, uh, Thoreau and living out in the woods and all of that kind of thing. But there's also, I think, um, I, I, I think that those things are always carried through when there's a big enough external threat, right? And, and, and you know, that... But even, even on a kind of basic level where it kind of forces people to rethink things a little bit, then, you know, that, that in itself goes some way to allow people to recognize their skills right you know you're a you're a marketing executive well you're useless right you're 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 anything blank executive or anything blank manager and you're probably useless right um you know and 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 this was always a a kind of thing I, i kind of played over in my head like i mean actually you you mentioned it to me um, about the skills I've got and whether whether I'd be useless yeah. when we were joking about the F six thing, right? I mean, you know, what, there's always something I'm kind of born in mind, right? I mean, what does academic work prepare me yeah. for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's difficult reading a book about all these thinkers with their completely useless skills. Yeah. And you're sitting in a PhD office going, oh. well, I mean, I, I, ironically, the great statement is that philosophy is learning how to die, right? And yeah. and, and in World War in World War Z, I mean, this this is a very real. Death comes to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so I mean. Just to finish up and, and, and to bring the to bring the two books together, I mean, there's part of me that says, I mean, perhaps, yeah, I was a little bit harsh on Dresner, um, maybe a little bit Yvonne Scowling. Should, no, probably <laughs> you, you second that sentiment. <laughs> I, I think that I think Brooks's victory is that Dresner's Dresner's work is around a hundred and something pages long, and it mentions World War Z maybe twenty or possibly even thirty times, if not actually counted. And if you're one book on zombies, citing another book on zombies that many times... Uh, in 100 pages. Yeah, in 100 pages. And they're small pages as yeah. well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost a tacit way of saying, go read World War Z. Well, I think it, with regard to the consistency and everything else of, of, of what Brooks is presenting, I mean, I, I, I think 
Actually, Dresner's book would be better if it was an analysis of World War Z. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Or if you built an IR textbook where it was read a chapter of World War Z, present a chapter on the issues it raises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem with World War Z is you can quite easily read it and not understand what it's saying more than just a basic story. Could if, you? It, I mean, if you were just a random person on the street who went into a bookshop, saw World War Z in the zombie section, picked it up, read it, enjoyed it, moved on with life whilst with Dresner you could at least know you were reading about international politics I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing I don't think sci-fi has to I mean this has come up a lot recently because of things that have happened in sci-fi literature but say District 9 can be both about explosions and spaceships and also be about apartheid and World War Z can you know be this exciting story about killing zombies and also be about politics I think that's what the strength of it is personally um, I'm just thinking if, you, if you're purely going to go on usefulness of studying as a teaching, as tool. A teaching yeah. tool you have to know it's a teaching tool for it to yeah. be useful in the first place I think I mean there's a lot to be said that like for um, the problem with um, social sciences as opposed to natural sciences is natural sciences have a definable object of study yeah. and I think yeah. Dresner takes too much on. Now, I mean, one of the interesting things, and you know, there is a resurgence. You know, you got philosophy in Harry Potter, or philosophy in Batman, philosophy in Watchmen. You've got IR and Harry Potter, and and you know, Battlestar Galactica and IR, and you know, which is actually quite. You know, we we should uh, big up Battlestar Galactica and IR because it's a good book actually. But I think being able to, I mean, consistency is a virtue in world building, right? And 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 particularly when you've got. A fictional setting when you can do what you like then perhaps you know if, if Dresner didn't feel the need to qualify whether zombies were fast or slow moving you know and was just able to make a solid statement on it then it would work as an analysis a lot better I, I think there's parts of the the book where you know when, when he's got more than two pages for a chapter where you know it, it fits in right the game theory chapter works the institution building chapter, apart from all the snide jokes he's making about various organisations, works. So it's, it's the fact that he feels the need to take too much on. You know, he wants zombies to be all kinds of threat, according to the IR literature that he's talking yeah. to, which takes account of various kinds of threat. If you'd focused on one, then it would be a lot better and, and a lot more satisfying. And Brooks manages to somehow define... So it shouldn't be possible to bring up a conversation about nuclear strategy during a book on zombies and yet he manages it twice with China in one instance and uh, Pakistan and Iran in another and okay it's not massively deep analysis and it doesn't talk about how deterrence works but he does bring it up at other times so the suggestion that um, we've entered a nuclear winter by the amount of people that are being burnt and the ash goes up this into the true. sky mm-hmm. yeah to the extent that the space station can't see down onto earth anymore it's blocked up the sun so much and, and I think in terms of using it as a teaching tool then it, it's really that's kind of the job of the lecturer then, or the seminar tutor, right? To tease just that to out, to get yeah. people mm-hmm. think about this. Well, and we're all, we're all curators, right? Yeah. yeah. In that yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, any final points to finish up before it's, we? Uh... It's World War Z, Read. not World War Z. <laughs> <laughs> there is a character in there who is British, and when he says Z head, it is on the page as Z E D. This clues us into the fact that you should not expect a single letter to be pronounced Z. And secondly, World War Z is a part of World War Three. It's World War Z. That's okay, so the with answer. the... Uh, <laughs> we'll finish with... Uh, I'd like just like to suggest that Matt's presenting the dogmatism that we'd expect from any zombie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks very much, guys. And, uh, and we'll see you next month. Cheers, bye. Thank you. Thank you.